welcome to PCOM Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Feldstein, and today we're talking with PCOM Georgia faculty members, Valerie Cadet, PhD, and Shirin Majidova, PharmD, about vaccine development. Along with social distancing, hand sanitizing, and wearing a mask, the development of vaccine is seen as the foremost way to combat COVID-19, a global pandemic that has defined our way of life for most of 2020. Currently, there is a race taking place among researchers and laboratories to develop a vaccine to immunize people against this novel coronavirus. Our faculty members will break down the process involved in launching clinical trials and discuss the effectiveness of these trials. Dr. Cadet is an associate professor of microbiology and immunology, received her PhD from the University of Georgia College of Veterinary Medicine. Her teaching focuses primarily on the immune system, mechanisms of host defense, virology, bacteriology, and general microbiological therapeutic interventions. Dr. Majudova, an assistant professor in the PCOM School of Pharmacy, earned a Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Nova Southeastern University College of Pharmacy, where she was also completed a two-year academic fellowship specializing in pediatric pharmacotherapy. Her teaching focuses primarily on pediatric pharmacotherapy, including complementary and alternative medicine, safe medication use, and various internal medicine topics. Welcome, Drs. Cadet and Dr. Majidova. So what is the usual timeline for vaccine development and the steps involved? It's a great question everybody asks, and the process is multi-phased. So you've got starting with like an exploratory phase. So we've got to do basic lab research, and that usually lasts anywhere from two to four years. Then we move into a preclinical phase where we move our findings into mice or monkeys or whatever other animal model that's necessary to really um, look at the ability of that vaccine to provoke the appropriate immune response. That process can last for another year or two. From there, once we have the appropriate results analyzed and um, FDA approval, we can move into phase one. A phase one trial can be anywhere from 20 to 100 subjects, and that's pretty quick. It, it can be as quick as one month, 30 days, um, to get some results. At that point, we would move into phase two. Phase two are expanded trials that are looking at um, testing the vaccine in several hundred individuals. Um, and in this case, we may expand beyond what we saw in phase one, which phase one is just going to be healthy adults, typically up to age 55. Um, and we're going to expand possibly to children or elderly or the individuals uh, most at risk for whatever the disease is. And, and we're going to look at continued safety as well as efficacy and try to see how, how the immune response may vary in, in between the different groups. This process can last several months, even longer normally. And phase three would be the largest portion of these trials. Um, and phase three trials could involve, should involve usually thousands to up to tens of thousands of people. And in this case, it could take years under normal circumstances because in phase three, you want to vaccinate individuals, continue to look for any adverse effects, and you want to let people go about their normal lives. And in those circumstances, then you, they would encounter the disease or the, you know, agent normally. And so this process could take a while. So, you know, with everything I've just said, we're talking about, you know, 8 to 12 or more years normally. At this point, though, um, we're under special circumstances. 
you know, so we've got emergency authorizations in place, which can allow us to combine phases. So for instance, um, you know, maybe have an expanded phase one and phase two, where we're looking at maybe including more people, go beyond the 100 individuals in phase one, or maybe even expand the age, like we saw here um, in some of the trials in Georgia, where they, instead of stopping at 55, they expanded the age groups to up to 70 to help get more information quicker. Right, um, additionally, uh, some of these companies are running phase one and phase two trials simultaneously, again, to speed up the process. So many of the companies looking at vaccines right now are doing that as well. So with the uh, U.S. government Operation Warp Speed that we're in right now to kind of try to find the, vac the right vaccine as quickly as possible, this is where the government is investing money into different companies to try to get them um, to develop a vaccine that's safe and effective as quickly as possible. And that, again, includes that combination of phase one and two trials, which we usually don't see, but we do see now being done so that we can achieve that goal of having a vaccine um, by the end of the year or by the uh, by winter of next year, hopefully. Um, but then after the whole process of testing and clinical trials, then comes approval which is where you know, the regulators in each country kind of review all the trials and decide whether or not they will approve the vaccine for distribution. During a pandemic that we're in now, so these vaccines may receive emergency use authorization so that they don't have to jump through as many hurdles as vaccines usually have to go through. And then comes the distribution, so manufacturing and the distribution phase, which also can be quite challenging because we're making m many, many, many doses because it is a global pandemic. We have to make you know, millions and millions of doses and distribute them to many different countries. Um, so this is where the challenge of the countries working together, depending on which country will develop the vaccine first. So now we have to find out ways to work together so that um, everybody will have access to the, the vaccine. Now, since we've discussed the trials and how long they take, um, you know, we, we can expect anywhere from a year to two to three years. Usually vaccines take up to a decade from the beginning to all the way to the distribution and manufacturing phase. But of course, we don't have that kind of time. So some of the things that have been discussed um, by the scientific community are human challenge trials. And basically what that is, is that the volunteer, healthy volunteer, is given the vaccine and then given the virus, so the coronavirus or COVID-19 in this case, to see whether or not they will mount the immune response instead of waiting for that person to go out into the community and acquire the virus naturally. However, there's a lot of ethical issues with doing challenge trials. Uh, just from what it sounds like, you're infecting somebody with a potentially deadly virus. Um, even though we're choosing, in, in this case, a healthy individual would be chosen who is less of a risk for having severe complications from the virus. Uh, still, what, when we're thinking about vaccines for adults, usually they're not 100% effective, right? So if we think about like the flu vaccine, usually we have about anywhere from 60 to 80% efficacy every year, and it changes every year. So if this vaccine will be of a similar efficacy. We don't know whether or not this individual who is given the challenge trial will be 100% protected from the virus. 
So again, we might expose somebody to the disease as well. So there's a lot of kind of a fine line whether, you know, we want to help the overall global community to develop the vaccine as fast as possible because we have so many vulnerable populations that are at high risk of severe complications. But then again, we want to make sure that we protect every individual who is exposed to the virus and we don't want to deliberately expose them to something that could harm them. So that's basically kind of the overall process of the vaccine development and then some of the challenges that we're facing right now with getting this vac the vaccines approved as quickly as possible. And I just wanted to add on to that with all of that, you know, I hope it puts it in context why when you hear Dr. Fauci um, and a White House briefing say 12 to 18 months, and he was saying that in March, you know, at the start, real start of the U.S. pandemic uh, or epidemic, um, you know, that's an amazing, amazing, amazing timeline to say that we could achieve that, you know. And, you know, we'll talk about maybe some of the, the ways that it look, whether it looks like we will or we won't, but at the end of the day, you know, we're shrinking, we're trying to shrink a process which is at least a decade long under perfect circumstances down to a year and a half. Yeah, we definitely have uh, our challenges ahead of us. So what are the different types of vaccines that are currently in development for COVID-19? So I'll start here again. So this is an interesting thing. So every day this changes. So this this mm -hmm. is hot off the press as of July 8th, so a couple days ago. There are at least 145 different vaccine candidates in development um, worldwide. About a month ago, we were at 102. So that really does change. Out of that, we've got 22 of them already in, in trials in humans at various stages. 15 of them are in the very first phase one trials. Um, and we're talking worldwide, to be clear. Um, so that they're testing the, the efficacy and the safety and trying to determine dosage. 10 of them have moved on to expanded phase two trials where they're doing, um, you know, more safety, but now in higher numbers of people. Four of them are in large scale trials. One of them has even been moved into phase three um, in Brazil currently. And then one finally has just been approved for limited use specifically in the Chinese military. So we've got a variety of them. The U.S. has several of those in trial here right in the United States and then have has also developed partnerships with, you know, some other nations or some other um, companies and pharmaceutical companies to get secure doses of their vaccines for you know, individuals in the United States. So there's a variety of things. Sharon, did you want, do you want to expand on that? Yes, absolutely. So uh, I also wanted to mention that um, Emory University, so one of the biggest companies who is kind of on the track to develop a vaccine soon, Moderna, um, they have the mRNA vaccine that's entering phase three trial. So right about now, uh, expected sometime in July. Uh, with Emory University. So they have several different sites. Emory is one of the sites that they're beginning these phase three trials and they're currently recruiting volunteers. So they need thousands and tens of thousands of volunteers to start testing their vaccine. So they're on a fast track as well. And there's a couple of other companies also who are um, very promising in their clinical trials, I'm sorry. So we have um, a company with uh, that works with Pfizer and um, that is a New York-based company, and they're having a collaboration with a Chinese company as well and a German company. So they're about to enter phase three trials as well. Uh, and the other thing is that there's so many different vaccines right now that are being tested. And the 
the difference between them is that they're all different kinds of vaccines. So we're using so many innovative technologies right now to try to develop these vaccines to be safe, effective, and relatively quickly. So now we're doing some innovative technologies where we're using genetic vaccines, where you're basically using the RNA or the DNA of a virus. You are changing it a little bit so that it can still elicit the immune response that we want without having to use a whole bunch of a live virus. Um, so that's one of the types of vaccines. So the, the one of the uh, biggest um, front runners of vaccines, Moderna, is using this genetic uh, vaccine technology. So they're using the mRNA. We also have virus vector vaccines where we use uh, either the coronavirus or another virus as a vector to deliver um, the, the protein of the vaccine so that you can, again, elicit the immune response. There's protein-based vaccines. And then there is our basic um, vaccines where it's a whole virus, whether it's uh, deactivated completely or remove the um, the virulent part of it. So we have a lot of different technologies as well, which is I think is very interesting and very innovative uh, so that we all came together to try to find the most efficient way to produce this vaccine. And actually, it's pretty amazing, too, because you mentioned Operation Warp Speed earlier you know, the U.S. government's uh, initiative to to develop this vaccine, you know, and they recently announced that even with all of this in the pipeline, they're still pushing to get at least five more vaccine candidates. So they're talking with companies and trying to get companies to either pivot uh, from other ones or develop uh, certain platforms that have already been in place because there's even more unique initiatives that are out there. So we're looking to get at least five more candidate vaccines developed to add to that, you know, over 145 that we have right now. So it's really interesting. So do you see this being an annual vaccine, much like the flu vaccine is, or is this going to be one and then, you know, five or 10 years or whatever? With with the information that I understand about the virus, the coronaviruses in general, and you know, compares as compared to the flu virus. The reason why we have to get an annual flu vaccine is because the flu virus does something called drift. So, so the proteins on the surface of the virus change every year just so slightly, slightly enough that our antibody or, and our immune response that we've already built up the year prior isn't really as going to work against the new virus this year, just because it's slightly changed. The difference here is with the coronaviruses, and we don't know specifically all the information yet for this novel coronavirus, but all of the, the preliminary studies that we're seeing are showing that the antibodies that we do make against this particular virus just don't last very long. And so if that holds true, then our vaccine may not, may produce the same type of response. We don't know just yet. We're not, you know, we're, we're too early in the in the process to be able to know for sure how long the immune response wanes. But I did read something just this morning, which, you know, there's a prominent um, celebrity couple where both individuals had uh, contracted confirmed coronavirus, and they were both participating in studies with the government, actually, antibody studies specifically, and, and they just announced that, you know, they were infected very early on, and now several months later, their antibodies are already waning. So we still, you know, we've seen this in trials, come studies that have come out of China. Uh, there's a study out of Spain, which is pretty profound, which is saying the same thing. So, you know, in answer to your question, it is very likely, I would expect that we would have to take this annually, unless some major 
event can take place or some adjuvant, which is something that would actually help stimulate a stronger immune response, if added mm -hmm. to a vaccine, can be added to prolong the response. And I know right now some of the companies are studying the, the vaccines with an adjuvant to help elicit a stronger immune response. So they, I guess they are anticipating already that that might be the case. So they are studying both without and with the adjuvants. Um, and then some of this, the vaccines that are entering phase three trial, uh, most of them will require two doses about three to four weeks apart. Um, and then they're expected to, the, the, the volunteer is expected to be, uh, to elicit a full immune response about two weeks after the second dose. So that's, that's how they're uh, creating the vaccines as of now. So you definitely need two doses um, of the vaccine. And, and what will the distribution process look like once a vaccine or multiple vaccines are approved? That's a great question. Um, distribution will be our next huge challenge once this vaccine is actually is developed. Um, and, you know, like, like we've mentioned before, you know, the, there's so many people that need to get this vaccine and developing so many doses is a challenge of itself. So a lot of the vaccine companies that are developing the vaccines right now, they're also partnering with manufacturing companies as well to kind of look ahead to be able to manufacture that many millions and billions of doses. Um, so they're kind of trying to plan for that ahead of time. And obviously we're gonna need probably more than one vaccine manufacturer to, so it's not gonna be just one approved and that's it. We're gonna use that only that one. Um, we're gonna have to look at all the different vaccine uh, manufacturers to see what are the differences, whether we can use both or multiple ones because of that manufacturing capability that we need to account for. Then the next um, big question comes into play is who is going to regulate all of this, right? So if let's say, you know, one of the countries is the first one to approve the vaccine and show it to be safe and effective, how do we make sure that we get it to all the other countries? And so in that case, we'll have to have a governing body that already has systems in place of something like this, technologies in place that knows how to distribute something effectively. So an organization like the World Health Organization would probably be um, a very important part of this distribution process to kind of, because they already have the technologies in place, they already have the expertise of uh, manipulating something so big and therefore they will have to already use some kind of existing infrastructure of navigating this kind of a distribution process so that we are not reinventing the wheel and that we can optimize the distribution process as much as possible. Um, did you wanna add anything, Dr. Cadet? Yes, so that was like the macro scale, on the global scale, what has to happen. So let's, mm -hmm. let's shrink it to a more micro level of the United States and understanding we're 50 states, multiple territories, right? So at this point, you know, there's so much in the news today, which is highlighting the fact that there are disparities in our country. So, and we're a medical institution. Health disparities are widespread in the United States um, for a variety of reasons. We've got a lot of socioeconomic disparities. Ultimately, that equals a lack of equal access to health care. So, you know, there really needs to be, just like uh, you just described, uh, Dr. Medjadova, this centralized process by the World Health Organization, ideally. In the United States, we need to have a centralized process as well. And in that case, we need to have people at the table who really have an understanding of rural medicine, for instance. 
um, inner city medicine, nuances between inner city Detroit versus inner city New York City versus inner city Atlanta, for instance, and and so many other potential you know issues, areas, concerns. Because at the end of the day, the problem is real, so we must acknowledge that there is a problem. And while we all want to solve the problem of lack of equal access to health care, you know it's not going to be solved overnight. So we need to bring the appropriate people to the table to centralize a process of distribution so that it's fair and equitable in the U.S. as well. I know typically, you know, a lot of things end up going from they're distributed to the states and then all of the states and territories then go about their own policies. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So that's a process that we'll have to look at in order to make sure that the, the distribution process is beneficial to everybody because as we see, um, in terms of the mitigation effects that we, you know, have been encouraged to do uh, in order to mitigate the spread of the virus within the country, what I do affects you. So ultimately, I would presume that this is going to continue. We need to really get the vaccine into everybody's hands and bodies, technically, in order to help mitigate for everyone. The proposed plan right now for distribution is to begin with populations who are the most vulnerable of contracting COVID-19, so that, that would be our healthcare workers or anybody on the front lines, and then also populations who are most vulnerable for adverse effects from coronavirus, so our elderly population, anyone with um, chronic conditions, diabetes, those patients who are overweight, so those who we've seen have had the most death rates from coronavirus as well, and then start distributing to the rest of the population. So that has been the proposed plan, um, however, that also kind of creates some, uh, I believe, I believe it creates some ethical concerns as well, because yes, we do, um, we are not going to distribute anything unless we have proven that it's safe and effective. However, another part of a clinical trial is the post-marketing surveillance, which is almost like a, it's considered a phase four trial, right? So you might not account for every possible uh, adverse effect that can occur when you're testing in a small population. But once the drug is distributed to a uh, vaccine is distributed to a larger scale, then you start seeing a lot of these different side effects come through that might not be very common, but yet they still exist. So we might then be predisposing these more vulnerable populations to potential other adverse effects that we haven't accounted for yet. Or if the vaccine is not as effective, then again, we might be um, falsely giving them hope that they are protected. So whether while it does make complete sense to begin with the most vulnerable population, it also we have to kind of thread the waters very um, carefully and make sure that uh, we are not giving any kind of false hope or we're not producing any adverse effects that we haven't accounted for. Um, again, we can't account for that for everything, but we just have to be careful, I believe. You know, you just jogged my memory on one more thing. Um, one major factor, in addition to all these other, actually everything is a major factor at this point, in the distribution process is the anti-vaccination campaigns. You know, so they're still here, they're still rampant. You know, the United States is not immune to anti-vaccine campaigns. Um, and so the problem here would be that in order to achieve the herd immunity that we're going to need to achieve, in order to resume some sort of normal societal life, we're going to need to get this vaccine distributed 
to enough people in the U.S. Um, well, enough people worldwide, period. And so this is an initiative that we've seen take place and, and severely affect outcomes and, and lead to resurgences of other diseases like measles, for instance, or whooping cough or other, other diseases. And so this is one of those cases where it's a very challenging set of circumstances that are going to have to pretty much, like you said, tread lightly, um, dance together, come together, everything mm -hmm. fall in place in order to have it, have this vaccine distributed globally as well as, you know, locally in the country, but then to enough people as well. That's right, because if, if we want to achieve that herd immunity, we need to have at least 70% of the population immunized, either naturally immunized by getting the, the, vac the virus or by um, immunizing via the vaccine. And given that we live in the global world, right, everybody travels everywhere, you know, even if we have really good immunization rates in one country, that might not be the case in another country. And then again, we are exposing the most vulnerable population. So you're right, Dr. Cadet, we need to have very, um, very good systems in place in order to ensure that we do achieve that herd immunity. And we don't have to go through these, you know, very difficult quarantine times in the future, hopefully. Well, thank you. Do you have any questions for me? Uh, yes, we do. So uh, our first question for you, Dr. Feldstein, is with your past experience in the insurance industry, how do you think uninsured individuals will access to the vaccine for COVID-19? Well, I think uninsured individuals are going to have to be covered by either state governments through the exchange, Medicaid, direct pay, whatever, or a federal program, and it kind of gets into your question about distribution, especially in underserved areas. They're just gonna have to pay for it. And there's no way we can have reimbursement be an issue where people who aren't insured can't get vaccinated. I mean, this is a public health worldwide pandemic crisis. It's gonna have to be paid for, much, much like the program now. And I hesitate when I say it because, you know, national testing has been such an embarrassment for the United States, but uninsured individuals do get tested. It's covered, it's paid for. So reimbursement's not an issue, and it can't be an issue for the vaccine. It just can't. So thinking along those lines still, um, this is going to be a new vaccine. Somebody's going to have to pay for it. Do you believe that insurance companies or perhaps the va vaccine manufacturers themselves will cover the costs associated with adverse events that might arise from the vaccine. Yeah, they will. I mean, they do it now. I mean, you're covered now if you have an adverse event. If you go get a vaccine, you have Guillain-Barre, you end up in the hospital for six months, it's, it's covered. And what happens is then the insurers go back to the manufacturers and get reimbursed. Nobody needs to worry about paying for costs due to an adverse event from an a vaccine. That would be something that I think that has, at least I can speak from Georgia, right? And what I see in Georgia, it, it appears as though there's, the governments have made it very clear that being uninsured or underinsured should not stand in the way of you getting a COVID test. You know, barring other issues with getting testing, you know, right. they've made it clear that don't let money be what stops you. So as long as they you know, continue to make that clear to people, then hopefully, you know, vaccine uptake will be um, positive.
for distribution, you have to have a national strategy. You just, you just do. I mean, it's just not going to work without. I mean, look what's how we're handling individual state by state, just you know, yeah. open, close, whatever. It's a fiasco. And you, you truly need a comprehensive statewide strategy. And one of the reasons I hope the schools get open at the right time is that that's a distribution channel. And, and just from past experience, you know, I'm, I think I'm older than anybody on this call. I mean, for the polio vaccine, we got vaccinated at school. You went to public school and you got your sugar cube. And that was the distribution channel. You, you didn't go to the doctor's office. You didn't go to a health center. You didn't go to an urgent care center. You went to school. And that's where the greatest amount of kids got immunized for polio. It was done through the schools. And, you know, hopefully that, that's one avenue that, that we could, you know, address today. But, I mean, distribution is going to be a challenge, especially if it's as haphazard as testing was and <laughs> is as we've experienced it now. You know, hopefully it won't be because uh, it can't be because it'll just be a fail. And, you know, as you stated, getting into minority populations, minority populations are high risk. You know, so, you know, we got to make sure we have the distribution channels to get the vaccine where it needs to be. And I think that's a challenge, especially in, in this current administration. It's more political, unfortunately. You know, we've mm -hmm. politicized everything. So, I pray that vaccination doesn't get politicized. We know we're going to have the anti-vaxxers. And look at the flu vaccine. I mean, you know, only 50% of the population gets a flu vaccine. And we know as clinicians, 50% 50 50 of the population is non-compliant with any medical regimen. Mm -hmm. That's why when I see people who don't wear masks, I'm not shocked. I mean, <laughs> I could, you know, I'd be, how many people take their hypertensive medication? How many people take their diabetic medication? The only difference is their choice doesn't impact our lives. Yes. You don't wear a mask. You don't get vaccinated. You impact everybody else's life around you in a negative way. So hopefully we'll do a better job of vaccinating than we did of testing. I know we've covered a lot of challenges with distribution um, of vaccines. But what do you anticipate will be the biggest challenge with vaccinating such a vast population against this virus? I think it'll just be it'll be pure distribution and allocation of vaccines. You know, that's why I hope it doesn't get politicized. You know, what states get it first, what populations get it first, that it's funded appropriately, you know, that we don't have vaccines sitting on shelves because there's not enough people to administer vaccines. You know, the sugar cube was easy. Mm -hmm. You know, this is an injection, it's syringes. You know, I mean, we don't have enough masks. We don't have gowns. Are we going to have enough syringes? Are we going to, like, listen, you know, six months from now? Oh, we don't have enough syringes. We can't inject it. I mean, because who would have thought, you know, six months ago there wouldn't be enough personal protective equipment? Or enough nasal swabs nasal to be able swabs. to even take samples. We're, we're reagents to run the test. You know, it's things that we, you know, would normally not think of being an issue that will, will be an issue. So it's you really know. going to be the distribution chain is where I think, and to have enough raw materials, that we have enough syringes. 
Yeah, I'm hoping that we're thinking proactively about this, getting ready for this. Like you said, having everything in place ahead of time. And we are. I mean, there are companies that have ramped up production of syringes, Mm -hmm. of swabs, you know, for the testing, of the other things that we need. But, you know, Mm -hmm. Dr. Feldstein, you brought up something that's really important that a lot of people don't think about. Vaccines in many cases are refrigerated, right? You go to the doctor's office and they take it out of the refrigerator. Now, Mm -hmm. the sugar cube doesn't have to be refrigerated per se, or it's at least shelf stable, stable for a longer period. That's Mm -hmm. a factor. And even in the United States, you know, this particular pandemic has brought to light something that a lot of people didn't know. I can say I didn't know that, you know, for instance, on the Navajo Nation, there's a huge majority of people that live without electricity. And that mm-hmm. is happening in, in this country. And I'm, I'm using that population, you know, some of the statistics I've seen to just say, these are challenges that we all, we all collectively, I think, have to think about how do we address because distribution is, is huge. As a pharmacist, you know, we've had to go through a lot of approval processes to be able to actually administer vaccines as well. Um, you know, so we, I think we take a big part in making sure that we do give the flu vaccine and then getting a lot of the population vaccinated so they don't have to go to the doctor's office. So my hope is that with this novel vaccine, we'll also have that approval fast tracked so that pharmacists will be able to also give the vaccines and kind of speed up the process of getting the population vaccinated as well. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we'll have to use every distribution channel at our disposal, whatever, wherever, who's ever licensed, whoever can give a vaccination, we'll have to do that so we can maximize the delivery. I think looking back at the success that the entire world had with eradicating smallpox, it's not far-fetched to say that there are there are things in place that worked. They worked in industrialized nations. They worked in non-industrialized nations. They worked in a variety of conditions. And we successfully eradicated the world of a virus that, you know, was was devastating. You know, there's differences, you know, and that's, that's a time for another conversation in terms of what are some of the differences there. But the point, I think, is that it's been done. It's not unprecedented. Mm-hmm. So if we can pull all those same resources with the advances that we have today, it's doable. Yeah, I think even with the measles vaccine, that was fast tracked as well, um, even though it took about four years, but it was still a much quicker process than any other vaccine development. And we had a, a full eradication at some point. So. Well, I just hope that next year at this time, we're not having the same conversation. Or if we are, we're at a much reduced level, so we might even be in the same room, perhaps. Hopefully. That would be fun. Well, I just want to thank both of you for joining us today. This was a great conversation. I can't wait for it to get out to the community so people can listen to it. We appreciate your expertise and extensive knowledge about the process involved in developing safe and effective vaccines. To listen to past episodes of this podcast and become a subscriber, visit our SoundCloud page or visit us on iTunes by searching Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm Jay Feldstein, and this has been PCOM Perspectives.